and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show dedicated to creating and discussing alternative perspectives on sports and art. I am your host, Abigail Smithson, and today we are talking about maps, maps and basketball. Kurt Goldsberry joined the pod to discuss cartography, NBA stats, and how he has combined the two to make some stunning graphics that reflect recent NBA trends and the history of basketball. Kirk is a lecturer in management and the associate director of the Center for Leadership and Ethics at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as a staff writer at ESPN. What I love about Kirk's work is that it is bringing together art and science, culminating in a visual that celebrates basketball and informs the viewer. Thank you so much to Kirk for coming on, and thank you to you all for listening. As always, please share, subscribe, rate, and review Dear Adam Silver wherever you find your podcast, and please stay safe out there. As always, I am happy to share that this episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's. Bookman's has lots of wonderful events that are going on right now, including Seussibration Celebration Day coming up on Tuesday, March 2nd for all the Dr. Seuss stands out there. Bookman's is also honoring the legacy of graphic novel writer Will Eisner by virtually featuring a range of Arizona artists. In addition, their in-store Saturday trivia and a manga virtual meetup are also taking place. Bookman sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more and is a wonderful community-oriented store where the shelves are stocked with items brought in by the community. In addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. Bookman's has curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling in trades. Please visit www.bookmans.com for more information and details about events and to find your nearest location. And remember, Bookman's has cool covered. Let's start with your uh, your interest in maps, your love of maps, your map making, how that all came to be. Yeah, so it started for me, I guess, as an undergraduate student at Penn State University, and I was sort of flailing like a lot of young people just looking for uh, a discipline that liked that I liked and uh, I remember I took this class in my junior year at Penn State um, on GIS and cartography with a woman named Cindy Brewer who is, is is the most influential teacher I've ever had and one of the best cartography professors on the planet uh, I didn't know that at the time I thought I was just taking a random class and Cindy really um you know, blew my mind with with the exercises that she would put us through and, and the skills that she was developing in her students. Um, and I really fell in love with one particular aspect of map making was sort of the half design, half science or half art, half science aspect of uh, cartography and spatial analysis and sort of it let me it let me sort of explore really quantitative ideas, but at the end of the day build these aesthetic artifacts to communicate them. Um, and you know, for the first time in my life, I really found a purpose. Uh, and so I became like a map guy. And then I went to graduate school and got a PhD in cartography and became a professor. Uh, who taught cartography classes. I tried to teach like Cindy at, at Michigan State University and then at Harvard. Um, and I've taught those ideas for, I guess, man, 15 years now. So I'm a cartographer. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, the, that's, the short, that's the short version. 
Sure. And let's talk a little bit about how basketball enters into the scene here with your love of mapping. Yeah. So long story short, uh, when I was teaching at Harvard, I was only teaching one class a semester and I had a lot of spare time. And um, I had always had this idea in the back of my head to to use cartography and spatial analysis to visualize the the shooting tendencies and efficiencies of different NBA players on the basketball court. Because I knew as a struggling basketball player myself, there were places on the basketball court that I thrived from and places I struggled from. And I knew my friends and teammates and opponents exhibited those same kind of tendencies unique to themselves. And I always wondered why people hadn't tackled that as just a fan who had this weird skill set. I always wondered why there were no maps of shooting behavior. Uh, And so I finally got my hands on some shooting data from the NBA around 2011 and started to mess with it and started to sort of build you know, little grammars and structures that would expose the idiosyncrasies in in the game's best players. I remember looking at Dirk Nowitzki and Kobe Bryant back then, uh, and I presented that work at the MIT Sloan Conference in 2012, and people really responded to it, uh, and that changed my career around. And long story short, two, two two or three years later, I was no longer a professor, and I was working for ESPN. Uh, making these kinds of graphics and charts about NBA players and teams. And I think there's something so, what you mentioned before about maps and cartography kind of bringing the elements of science and art together. And the the graphics that you have made for ESPN and uh, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, yourself, like, have, are beautiful, um, and uh, you know, visually. And you're thinking about color and just how this sort of, the the shooting patterns come through visually to your audience and just if you just could talk a little bit about how you make those choices for sort of and how you visualize the the map looking at the end of the at the end of your time making it yeah that's a great question and it's something i love to talk about um because again i think it it sort of epitomizes the half design half science half art half science sort of thing um, you know, in graduate school, I studied with a woman named Sarah Fabrikant, who's now in, in Switzerland. Swiss are the best cartographers in the world, by the way. And one of the things that, that Sarah taught me was that, uh, you know, different design decisions really impact uh, a person's ability to apprehend the information encoded in the display. And it's, it's a concept that, that appears in everything from writing. I always use the example, like if I had tried to write Moby Dick, a story about a guy chasing a whale around, it would not have been Moby Dick, you know, that Melville took a very sincere care in how he encoded his story. Uh, And that same, you know, sort of thoughtfulness um, and and discipline and how we encode the exact same data set um, is, I think, really missing in, in scientific communication. A lot of the time people don't take pride in it. And one of the best things about cartography and graphics is that you can make shit that looks cool. Uh, And um, I take pride in trying to make something that is visually appealing um, because on this planet, people look at stuff that is visually appealing and tend to turn away from things that are not. After all, we're very visual creatures uh, and are programmed that way. So, you know, I learned a lot of stuff about how you can build these visual grammars that are successful 
Um, and over time, I've also, I think, learned a lot about what kinds of design elements people really respond to or don't respond to. So it's sort of half scientific, half creative, and I love that. And when you say that the Swiss are the best cartographers, what makes for the what makes that true? <laughs> well, um, you know, different cultures prioritize different things. And for whatever reason, you know, first of all, I'd love to say that I'd love to say that the maps are the most important documents in human history. Um, and that's that's a point of pride for for many of us in, in our community. But uh, for whatever reason, I think because the Swiss are sort of pretty quantitative, but also have very steep mountain terrain in their country. Um, they had to make really detailed, important maps of their lands in ways that other Europeans did not. <clears throat> and, and mountain cartography is particularly hard and challenging. And uh, if I had to explain it, Abigail, that's one theory. Um, I'm not here to really get into why that is, but I, I would say that, yeah, I, I was very fortunate to learn from two Swiss cartographers in, in my in my 20s, um, and they were badasses. And I don't know why that became to be, but, you know, just like I'd say, some some cultures really are great with classical music or cooking, um, and the Swiss happen to be very, very talented when it comes to, to cartography. That's so interesting. I'm going to look twice at any other Swiss Swiss maps I come across now. <laughs> well, there's the Swiss topographic map series is is the world standard. Uh, and the USGS topo series, which we use a lot here, is also a masterpiece. Um, and I'm not here to say that it's not. It's probably the second best in the world, uh, and it's freely available. Uh, and it's one of the great resources our government has provided our citizens. But I would say... Um, yeah, the Swiss have have a better sort of design um, and execution just by a small margin. So one thing I also ha was thinking about when looking at your work is kind of the expansiveness of, of maps, that maps are kind of open documents. And, you know, oftentimes now when we're trying to get from point A to point B on our phones, it can feel kind of enclosed and not have that same sort of openness that a map uh, that you're, you know, unfolding or that's going outwards allows for you to have. So I'm just wondering about if you if you might have that feeling as well around maps um, and and just how that might factor into your work. Even just thinking about the graphics that you've made kind of like come out from the from the basket as well, you know, showing all these three point shots that have been taken all around the three point arc, sort of starting from this place of the basket and like moving out there, kind of opening up. Yeah, that's another great question. Um, yeah, at some point, maps sort of stopped letting us explore them and started telling us what to do. Uh, I don't know when that happened, but you know, the map on your on your phone or in your car, you know, kind of it's kind of bossy. It tells you what to do, whereas you know, old school paper atlas sort of invites you to explore um, for minutes and minutes on end. It's sort of a choose your own adventure aesthetically. And I think that's a big difference between sort of interactive cartography and sort of old school cartography. And I've always enjoyed, um, you know, building documents that, that invite people to explore them and, and have that experience as opposed to demands that, you know, go turn right up, up here on Main Street or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. I, again, I don't 
I don't pretend to have an answer. And by the way, I would say that another great cartographic masterpiece is just simply Google Maps, uh, which has changed the world. Um, and it's just a different approach. It, also, you can have fun exploring that that document as well. So uh, it's just a different approach, I think, to communication. Yes, and I think that exploring versus the getting from one place to another, those don't overlap as much as they might have at one point um, because a lot of things have already been explored. <laughs> so there's not as much of the element of what might be found. Um, and I want to I want to shift a little bit actually from the maps to basketball and just read a quote from from an article you wrote where you say, one reason Curry has captured America's heart is that we've all tried to shoot. Most of us can't dunk or soar through the air like Michael Jordan or LeBron James, but we can all at least shoot. The most remarkable thing about Curry is that on a planet full of billions of people who have tried to shoot a basketball, one dude is so much better at it than the rest of us, even all the other professional basketball players in the NBA. So this was such an interesting point because... Even when someone dunks and it doesn't go in, although I understand why it's embarrassing, I'm never thinking, oh, I could have done that. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I could have finished that um, shot. And But there is something that's a little bit painful about, you know, when a, a team has run this like beautiful play and passed the ball like eight times and it ends up in the, you know, the open person's hand on the edge of the three-point Lino in the corner or whatever. And uh, they shoot it and they miss and it's like, damn, like, I could have made that maybe. Um, and it's just, uh, there is something that feels kind of, um, I feel very much, mo much more connected to, to shooting rather than dunking. And it's just such an important point that I hadn't really realized before reading your article. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's something that's obviously stuck with me. And, and, you know, even in Texas, where I live, uh, in the heart of the Spurs country, uh, but also uh, R Rockets fans and Mavericks fans, three very successful NBA franchises, a huge amount of the, the kids on the playground in Austin wear Steph Curry jerseys. I think he has captured the hearts of, of young players, um, in part because of the relatable act of of shooting the ball uh which unlike you know the icon of my youth was was obviously michael jordan um who you couldn't really go out and try to do what he did in the dunk contest or soaring from the free throw line trust me we all tried uh but we wouldn't get anywhere near it um you know you try to shoot his fade away and stuff like that and we all learned that that move but i think yeah the the, the basic idea that that makes, I think, basketball separate from, say, baseball or football is that you can go out and play um, on almost any block in America uh, and you can you can grab a ball out of the garage or from a friend, and go down and shoot baskets, maybe in your backyard or at the park or your high school or at a church game somewhere. So many of us have done that. Very few of us have actually dunked the basketball. Uh, but all of us have tried to shoot a three-pointer at one point or another. And yeah, I do think that's a really profound point that billions of people have tried to do this. And how crazy is it that one person has become so much better? And I don't think that's an exaggeration. This guy is so much better at this than anybody else. Even Clay Thompson on his own team, even Kevin Durant, his old teammate. They're great at different things. But Steph, I would say, is by far the best shooter on planet Earth. And I just think that's remarkable. Yeah, and I do think that, uh, you know, the sort of awe that comes with a dunk or, you know, the the amazing leap from the free throw line, 
uh, also is embodied sometimes in the the you know you're double teamed and you're you know three or five feet from the three point line and you somehow still put it in the basket which we've seen Steph Curry do so many times in really high intense you know high intensity uh, moments and you know other players are are doing that as well and it's just there is something like how did you do that because while we all have shot the ball we all haven't shot the ball in those situations uh and it's just a whole other layer <laughs> no you're exactly right i think his most iconic shot happened in i think february of 2016 in oklahoma city uh in one of their games where they're chasing the 73 wins uh and steph beat the thunder with a magnificent buzzer beater from like 35 feet away i wrote about my the first chapter of my book sprawl ball because it was just such a definitive moment and i think it's a definitive moment not because it was like such a great buzzer beating shot but because kind of when you were watching it that based on what curry had been doing for the last couple of years the ball's hanging in your in the air and you're like i think that's gonna go in and like it then it did and it was just like whoa like this guy is changing basketball right in front of our eyes um and yeah just the sheer confidence that he has and then as viewers we have when he shoots a ball from 30 33 feet away from the basketball it was unlike anything i've ever experienced watching basketball before um and i think it speaks to just how great um he is and how much he's changed basketball just a few years later these 30 foot shots are, are relatively routine in the sport um and and in the fastest growing shots in pro basketball are these deep threes that curry and, and i have to say damian lillard also um made so popular in the last few years yeah absolutely and and even seeing you know recently like luka Doncic has also had these incredible you know last minute three-point shots from way beyond the three-point line and it's just like how that spreads and what was not possible before now becomes possible and still very very thrilling but um, becomes a little bit more like who else can do this Um, and when else might it happen. So let's talk a little bit about Sprawl Ball, if we could, your book, A Visual Tour of the New Era of the NBA. So how did this come to to be? Um, Well, I've been writing about basketball for years, and um, I studied it at Grantland. And I remember an article I wrote after the Spurs won the championship in 2014, essentially, I was sort of shocked at how many threes were in the 2014 finals and how efficient both teams were. Um, I think the Spurs particularly, if I remember correctly, uh, were from shooting there. And I was like, oh, man, this is like a nice postseason angle that nobody has, like the most finals threes we've ever seen. And so in that article, I sort of started playing with like what would happen if if the league decided to move the line? Because, you know, the NBA has changed rules over and over and over again and that combined with the aforementioned Steph Curry effect in the middle part of last decade uh we started to see just the NBA essentially metamorphosized in a decade uh, a remarkable change um that's still ongoing by the way but I was like I have an opportunity based on the way I look at the game and write about the game and visualize these shooting tendencies to capture this moment. Um, And so I saw it as an opportunity to really try to build a definitive document of that revolution in pro basketball, how it started and where it's going and potentially 
the last chapter looks at ways the MBA could augment its rule base to adjust to the insane ability of everybody in the league being able to shoot the ball from 25 feet now. Um, but yeah, long story short, it was a chance to to build a definitive document of what I thought was a really fascinating time and movement in pro basketball. Yes, and what are some of your thoughts about how the NBA um, – I mean, you don't have to share everything here, but just how the NBA can can adjust or evolve based on, you know, Kristaps Porzingis shooting three-pointers and making a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, one thing that has happened is jump shooters are taking over the league, period. The, the three-point jump shot is so wildly – efficient now for a vast majority of rotation players uh, in the NBA that what we've seen is a complete deformation of the aesthetic that I grew up with. And that's exciting. Um, but it's also a little bit troubling when the heritage aspect of the game is, is eroding in front of your face. Um, and I, I argue, and it's not up to me, basketball belongs to you, Abigail, as much as it belongs to me or anybody <laughs> else. So it's, I always, I always careful. Like I'm not the judge here, but from my experience, one of the things I love about basketball is the diversity of play. Different size players can thrive in different ways. And for a long time, pro basketball was dominated by the biggest, strongest guy on the court. Uh, and that wasn't particularly interesting. And so the league changed the rules over and over again. And the history of rule changes in the NBA is essentially a history of making the life of a big man harder and harder and harder and harder um, to the point where small ball is now a thing. Uh, we made the lane wider. We outlawed, outlawed goaltending. Uh, we implemented three seconds. Oh, of gosh. Course. I know. So they're really up against a lot. <laughs> yeah, And then they added the three-point line which is really designed to sort of give the power of, of perimeter shooting an extra point, literally. Uh, and so, you know, I think the pendulum now, after all of that, that history of 50 years of changes, it worked, it worked folks. And now the biggest guys are marginalized. Um, and, and the, and the, and the most talented shooters in the world are dominating the league. Um, and I think, the diversity of the game is sort of threatened. You know, we're looking at an era of basketball where uh, entire swaths of the court aren't even used to scoring opportunities. The mid-range is dead. Um, and that is in large part because why take a two-point jump shot from 15 feet when you can take a three-point jump shot from 24 feet um, and make them essentially at the same rate? There's a small percentage difference in those average efficiencies. But the number one thing is if we want to restore diversity, we have to make the three-point shot harder. Because right now, the, the efficiency gap between a three-point jump shot and a two-point jump shot is so enormous um, that why would you ever take a two-point jump shot? And, um, you know, I actually work with the NBA a little bit on exploring ideas for changing the three-point line. And that's a work in progress, so I can't say, say sure, too much. But yeah. I think it I think it is time that, that we look at the line, which was placed relatively arbitrarily, Abigail, and and look at adjusting it or playing with, with different options to make it a little tougher on these jump shooters. 
It's so interesting that you point out like all that space that's not being used on the court because the other night I was watching the Suns. I forget who they were playing, but Chris Paul was just kind of on a roll and he was just shooting a bunch of like mid-range jump shots and making a lot of them. And that's kind of a little bit of his uh, bread and butter or, or was that night at least. And I was like, wow, this is so nice to see. I mean, it just looks so different. Yeah. It's a different visual effect. Um, and especially, you know, it's... Uh, it, it just, yeah, it uses that space in a way that is mixing it up. Um, of course, he shoots threes, too, and so do a lot of people on, on that team. But it's just, uh, it was nice. It was refreshing. It is refreshing. And Chris is, is one of the few uh, volume practitioners of mid-range shooting. Uh, Kevin Durant is another one. Kawhi Leonard is another one. Um, you know, but even LeBron James has is, is removed it almost uh, entirely from his portfolio. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful way. I mean, if you look at, if you just picture Dirk Nowitzki in your head or Michael Jordan in your head, um, and picture highlights, there's a lot of mid-range shots. Some of the most beautiful iconic moments in Jordan's career happened in this in-between era, uh, area between the three. And, and, and that's sort of eroding. And one of the things I tried to do in sprawl ball was attack this narrative that is obsessed with the rise of three pointers, which of course is, is what's happening. Uh, but you, like my, my hippie sister always says, you know, you, you don't, you don't quit doing anything. You start doing something else. And so, you know, we stopped shooting mid range and we started shooting threes. Um, the, 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 the decline of the mid range is just as much of the story here. The decline of the post game is just as much of a story as the rise of the three. And in the, in the discourse and in, 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 in popular basketball discourse, it's almost always framed as the rise of the three. Um, and I wanted to give some oxygen to the idea that like, no baseline two point jump shots are gone now. The, yeah, the idea that absolutely. A little baseline jumper. Um, that's just eliminated from the sport, <laughs> uh, which is remarkable. And not enough people were, were really seizing on that. So again, I go back to this. I had the opportunity to, to put this down in, in, a, in a book uh, and I tried to do it. Yeah. And I think also just your time, um, you know, in, in Texas and, and being with the Spurs, like that, you know, Tim Duncan is such a wonderful example of someone with those mid-range jump shots, just a beautiful shooter from that distance and use the ball so effectively closer to the basket. Um, and that the, the game has changed so much since he, you know, started in the league and he only retired a few years ago. Yeah, no, Tim is one of the greatest players of all time. I don't think that's an exaggeration. He won 50 games every year he played, went to the playoffs every year he played, won, you know, so many awards we could go on. Uh, but his offensive aesthetic is extinct. Very few players even post up. And when I picture Tim, I picture him shooting a bank shot from about 14 feet away on the left block. Um, and I'm not alone, but nobody shoots that shot. Literally, maybe his, maybe LaMarcus Aldridge, Carl Anthony Towns, Joel Embiid. I shouldn't say nobody, um, but just looking at the number of players in his heyday that, that posted up and shot from there. Um, versus today is a drastic exercise because it's not an exaggeration to say post-up activity has gone down over 50% in the last 10 years. Um, and it's not an exaggeration to say mid-range shooting has gone down by that amount as well. 
so yeah, I mean, we're, 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 we're looking at a brave new world and I'm not mad about it. Uh, but I, I, I do like to, 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 to raise this idea that, you know, there's some diversity we're losing here and, you know, basketball's at its best when different sized players, different kinds of players are able to win, you know, the big awards and be the best players in the world. And right now those post-up players and mid-range shooters are, um, a dying breed at best. Yes, I'm looking at one of your graphics that says mid-range is dead. Carmelo Anthony is the last great American ball hog. And I was thinking about Carmelo when you were uh, describing that shot that Tim Duncan might take. I was thinking that Carmelo might take that shot, you know, in tonight's Blazers game or tomorrow, whenever it happens. Um, but that, yeah, that is, that's such an interesting, uh, to kind of uh, have graphics that kind of show what, is happening and have graphics that show what isn't happening as well. Yeah, I think so. And, and like Chris Paul, Carmelo, who is a player um, that I, I adore, sure. um, they're aging out of the league. And another way that these changes are happening is just old guys retiring and being replaced by new guys who don't do that. Um, so every year there's fewer and fewer of these 32-year-olds, 34-year-olds, 38-year-olds that grew up with those parts of the game. Um, and, and there's more and more of these 21, 22, 23-year-olds who grew up shooting threes and living in this sort of Daryl Morey universe of threes, free throws, and laps, which is um, certainly analytically correct, um, but aesthetically might not be so correct to me, you know. <laughs> I think this brings me to uh, or us to your Naismith International Park map with sort of uh, this map that you've created to kind of replicate what a uh, national park map might look like. But it's all about basketball, the history of basketball, contemporary basketball. Um, and you made this in 2019. Is that right? No, I made it in 2020. OK. I think. Yeah. Um, and it just includes all the normal things a map might include about, uh, you know, geographical points of interest, um, the topographical changes throughout the map. I mean, we start in the center with the Jabbar foothills. Um, we have the Peach Basket Mountain right below that. Um, and all of these places also named after players, Timmy's Bank, Aldridge Valley players, and uh, broadcasters and journalists, um, Pippin Valley, Wade County, uh, and historical moments are on this map as well. The Artest putback of 2010. Uh, I'm laughing because I think this map is is so funny in so many ways. It's so clever. Um, we have Skyhook Meadows, uh, McMullen Trail, just so much richness in one sort of document. And uh, the Bosch to Allen kickout trail, which is so amazing too. Just thinking about these moments that are kind of embedded in our heads, uh, seeing them in this other other format, is just really amazing. So I've kind of gone on about it, but if you'd like to talk about the construction of this map that we see, that's more maybe traditional to what we associate with how maps are visualized than, yeah, the, than so, the graphics. Uh, first of all, thank you for all your kind words. I was blown away by how many people have supported this thing and to anybody listening that supported, it, I really appreciate it. Um, if anybody wants to look at it or get it, even they can get it at the golden hexagon.com. Uh, and I'll share that in the notes 
for the show. That's great. I appreciate that, Abigail. But the the map itself, I think, has a really funny origin story because I was just sitting around during the pandemic. I think it was sometime during the bubble playoffs in my office. And I was doing what I normally do. I was just fucking around with NBA shooting data. Um, And I was like, let's make a terrain map and show the most common points scored areas where where the most points were scored during this season um and i made that and you know you get a big mountaintop under the basket and then obviously a big ring of of mountains uh like a, a mountain range sort of around the three-point arc um and then that was it i was about to you know put it on social media or on instagram or something and then like i had the idea i was like oh i should put luca Doncic's buzzer beater from the bubble on there and then that's when it clicked is like, oh, I should put the other great shots from this year on there. And then I started putting all the other great bubble shots and all the pandemic basketball shots and from just from the 2019-20 season, Abigail. Uh, and then at some point I put like a Michael Jordan, I think the first historical marker I put on there is like Michael Jordan over Byron Russell. And that's when I realized I was on the precipice of doing something different. Uh, and, and that's when I was like, oh shit, I better do this right. And then it went from like something that was going to be on social media in 30 minutes to something that I was going to work for three months on because I knew I was about to add Larry Bird and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and all these people to this this terrain because it's such a familiar terrain. It's like a, the basketball court is a geography that we all grew up within in a weird way. And, and we've all studied in our own ways. And I, I, I thought of that and I was like, I could make this idea more explicit to people and realize that we have this common geography that we've never really put in those terms. And given my cartographic background, I was like, man, I got to do this. And then you know, the Swiss are the greatest cartographers in the world. The Americans are second, and they're still really, really good. And this one I made in the style of the U.S. Parks maps because those are some of my favorite maps. Uh, and I wanted to pay a tribute to them. And at first, I didn't have a name for it. And then the name Naismith came to my mind. Of course, I have to call it Naismith. And then it was the Naismith National Park because I was using the style. But I was like, wait a second. Dirk Nowitzki is an international guy. Manu Ginobili is a friend of mine. Is an internet. I better not call it the National Park. First of all, Naismith is Canadian. Uh, second of all, these international players have, have brought joy to my life in this geography. So the Naismith International Park map was born, uh, and I tried my best to put everybody on there. And I must admit, I did pretty well, uh, but I didn't get everybody on there. Clyde Drexler's not on there, which I've heard a lot about. Okay. Uh, people and... Uh, <laughs> you know, Gary Payton didn't make it on there. And like, there's people who, ah, man, because there's like hundreds, if not thousands of references on the map. And I tried to get men's and women's legends on there in the right places. Uh, I studied like the greatest shots in NBA history and tried to map them um, and in WNBA history and and, and college basketball too. And just expanded. I was like, I know I'm going to miss something, but I think I did pretty good. But uh, that's the story. Um, and I'm sorry if I went on too long about it. No, please. I think it's uh, it's such a sort of exciting thing. And, uh, you know, I think it is like there's things that maybe the average person wouldn't uh, 
it wouldn't they wouldn't register you know the i'm seeing the um waiter's island the zach Lowe observatory on waiter's island such a like basketball nerd uh detail in there which I love so much and but then I also think that just this like this idea of like celebrating and appreciating basketball in this in this format that we don't get to see it and I think that you know so this this rich history of basketball professional basketball all of it um is sometimes like segmented and not something that you get to take in all at once and sort of experience all at once and I think that that is what's so exciting about this yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, maps, like I said earlier, are very powerful documents. People have stared at them for hours in very important ways or in just exploring their 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 city or their town or the park they're visiting. Um, people have a very powerful connection to that style of document. Um, and it's it's the geographer's tool as a map and to think about this space that we've become so intimately familiar with and stared at this box that's 47 feet or 94 feet by 50 feet um for so long and watched so many incredible performances and memorable things and try to document that in in this cartographic form uh god it was a big task i have two things that i really want to do with it going forward it's good it's it's, it's gonna it's gonna be dynamic it's gonna update i have to update it um if somebody wins the nba finals this year with a buzzer beater that's going on there uh if somebody wins the WNBA finals with a buzzer beater that's going on there um you know if then somebody wins march madness you get the point yeah uh, it yeah. has to continue to evolve uh and then the second thing is i'd love to put this and i know you got more art, art connections than i do abigail so i'd love to make an installation where it's actually a basketball court size um and people can walk around and and, and, and interact with some of these moments where they can click or touch or walk in the moment um, or the player um, or the coach that we sort of named this place for is 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 revealed to them. And maybe it's a good educational tool for younger people to understand, like, who in the world is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and why is, is this important? So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to make this even more of a tactile um, mm-hmm. experience for people. Um, but we need a basketball court and a lot of a lot yeah. of time and money to make I it I do know I do know people who do things on basketball courts and usually but usually what they you know if they're painting on them the basketball courts are you know used afterwards so I think we'd have to figure out if you would want eventually for people to play basketball on the map Oh um, hell yeah dude you could play horse <laughs> this would be the best horse court of all time Yeah that's like, true take the shot from the Jordan Byron Russell spot or you know oh, uh, I love the that. Mario Chalmers shot and I'm going to beat you with Mario Chalmers uh Kansas buzzer beater when they beat Memphis uh, or whatever it yeah. is Yeah I want to take a bank shot from Skyhook Meadow. <laughs> <laughs> right. It would be the ultimate game of horse if you could inform it with these exact locations of some of the most iconic shots and um, signature moves uh, of the game's history. Yeah, I do think that that's just the historical element is so valuable because, I mean, I also grew up sort of thinking that the Chicago Bulls were like the only – good team ever <laughs> in the NBA, you know, like the best team yeah. and they did it right and all this stuff. And just, you know, thinking that people who also 
grew up in the 1980s, it's like the Celtics and the Lakers and that just every sort of generation has has this team that's kind of defines things for them. And there's all these exciting things that happened before that team and will happen in the future. And it's just so nice to keep, like you're saying, like to have other, you know, maps aren't really like stagnant as as an idea or as a document. I'm just thinking about the atlas I have in my car um, of the United States that it's like the 2016 version of this atlas. And so they're always changing and evolving and including new information. Clyde Drexler can come in whenever, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, they're not stagnant. And so I just, I think that there's this educational component and this open openness that comes from, you know, this is something that could could change and evolve in the future as the game changes. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, maps are, you know, snapshots of, of the world and the geography of the world. And the geography of the world is not a stagnant thing. It is not something you can capture in a, in, in a, a snapshot. So, you know, um, yeah, I think this is a work in progress. Um, and like I said, I, I had no idea people would go so bonkers for this thing. I'm thrilled that they have, mm-hmm. but now I, now it's sort of emerging as a responsibility to to continue to steward it through the times. I want to walk along the easy money trail. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I guess we all do in some way. Well, you got to be Kevin Durant to walk that trail. Sure. Uh, I might avoid Rupp Valley. That's one that I might not spend as much time in. But there's so much much good stuff here. Oh, my God. Anyways. um, Oh, and Glen Dock River is also uh, so great. And Austin River coming off of it. So much beautiful stuff. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you I know. I'm just going on. I think just because, you know, I've looked at it a few times before we chatted, but then now that we're talking, I have it pulled up in front of me and it's like, you're right. You do, the, you know, you're finding more and more where when you look at it longer and longer. Yeah, I think, um, and there's more to be done, you know. I didn't think when I put this out, they would go crazy like this and like i said i would have worked harder on it if i had known (laughs) uh so you know as time allows i continue to tweak it and add things um whether they're they're missed players like clyde drexler as i mentioned or emerging moments from this season um and future seasons i think it's important to, to to sort of update it as we as we go Yes, and I think that that's a beautiful part about it as far as just, you know, those shots the and those plays that, you know, you're choosing to highlight, those can happen on a, you know, in the NBA Finals in Game 6, you know, when Michael Jordan, that iconic shot, or it can happen on a Tuesday night, you know, like the in the late game uh, when half the country's asleep already. There can also be these amazing things that take place, um, and I just think that uh, – that's that's just the excitement of watching basketball in this era I think is that like you are not you know you never know what is going to take place and you don't you don't want to miss it no I agree with you 100 percent and we're all we're all waiting for for these moments and and you mentioned it earlier Luka Doncic gave us another one um the other night when he beat the Celtics with a 30-foot shot and and the, from the almost the exact same point that I have on the map where he beat the Clippers in the first round of the playoffs. Oh, so in the bubble last year. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, he's got these two moments like that. And, and then again, Lou Dort had a buzzer beater to beat the Spurs last night, which made me a little sad, but happy for Lou Dort. Uh, but yeah, I mean, 
yeah, we're waiting for those moments. Those are incredible. And some of them stick with us. Um, and I really sort of lucked out or, or, or lucked into uh, a mechanism to sort of uh, assemble some of these memories that we share together in, in, in one graphic or one document. And, you know, I'm really thankful that, that, that I was able to, to put that together for some people. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me, all of these insights, how this came to be. Uh, it's such an interesting uh, overlap between these different worlds. And it's so fun to get to see how they've, you know, this progress has happened from the graphics to this map um, and your initial interest in in maps and, and just your own love for basketball. So thanks for sharing. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, take care. Hopefully, just smooth sailing with weather for a while. And yeah, uh, we will we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, Kirk. Thank you for having me. See you.